0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we are deeply immersed in the novel Persuasion by Jane Austen, first published a little more than 200 years ago. And yet, it still feels timeless. It's the last completed novel initiated by Jane when she was in her 30s, and considered by many to be the most mature of her works. We're focused on the second half of the book with an assist from our old friend Mike Palindrome. Today, on the History of Literature.
1: Uh.
0: Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. We've got Mike Palindrome talking about his first introduction to Jane Austen, his take on her books, and in particular, the moments in book two of Persuasion that he likes best. But first, let's hear some literary news. So Keith Reed died last month. He was the lyricist for the psychedelic rock band Procol Harum, best known for their song A Whiter Shade of Pale. Have you ever wondered about the name of their band? I did. I've heard this song, A Whiter Shade of Pale, a million times. It was a staple of classic rock radio back in the 80s, even though Procol Harum was barely known, at least to me. We knew who the Beatles were and the Rolling Stones and the Birds, and the Who and all these other bands, the Mamas and Papas. I could picture them. I could picture the Doors, the Kinks, Simon and Garfunkel, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Led Zeppelin. I knew what they looked like. I knew who was in them. Brokul Harem was a bit of a mystery. I didn't even really register the spooky greatness of the song, A Whiter Shade of Pale, confident, manic, grand, as in grandeur, like Edgar Allan Poe singing with a full throat. I didn't register the greatness of it until the movie New York Stories, which had three short films by Coppola, Scorsese, and Woody Allen. The best part of any of these three, I think, is Nick Nolte painting and slowly smoking and just existing with a whiter shade of pale in the background, drowning out everything but him and his emotions. Scorsese is so famous for his use of the Rolling Stones as background music in his films Monkey Man and Jumping Jack Flash and Can't You Hear Me Knocking and Give Me Shelter. And so, I mean, he used. <laughs> He used Gimme Shelter in Goodfellas, Casino, and The Departed. Let me pause here and share a quick parenthetical. This comes from Vulture. So the Stones were going to play a concert at the Beacon Theater in New York City, and Scorsese said, I want to make a concert film of it, which he did. The film Shine a Light. But before that, Keith Richards had said, apparently, yeah, another concert film... I don't know. He was skeptical until they told him that it was Martin Scorsese who wanted to do it. Then he agreed. You can't fuck around with him, Keith said. And then he said, I wanted to see what Marty saw in the Stones. Isn't that great? I wanted to see what Marty saw in the Stones. It's as if he's saying, I've I've lived my whole life in this band. But here's an artist I respect, his vision, his storytelling, his filmmaking prowess. Why does he like us so much? How do we look to him? What truths will he capture and expose? Will those sync up with how I feel on this side of the stage, the side that looks out, the side that's playing this music? Or will he show me something new? I love that. And Mick said, yeah. Well, it's the only Scorsese movie that doesn't feature Gimme Shelter, <laughs> which wasn't on the set list for that concert. Not a bad line either, but I like Keith's. I wanted to see what Marty saw in the Stones. Okay, back to our Procol Harem story. The movie New York Stories, specifically the Scorsese third of it with Whiter Shade of Pale. I saw it in the theater and haven't seen that movie since, but I can vividly remember the use of this song with its beat and its... Bach-influenced organ and its heartfelt singing and its evocative lyrics. Who was Procol Harum? And who wrote these lyrics? Procol Harum, it turns out, is a Latin phrase that means far from these things. Except that's not quite Procol Harum. That's Procol Harun or Procol Haroon with an N. Some say it's a reference to a giant ocean on the moon called... Procellarum, or Procolarum, which the band members may have heard and not seen spelled. The band themselves said that the name Procolarum came from a friend's cat. Maybe it's a mix of all of those together. In any case, Keith Reed was unusual. He was in the band, a full-time member, and yet he didn't perform. Didn't sing, didn't play an instrument. He just wrote lyrics, and they were awesome. Let's dispense with one potential literary reference in our song, A Whiter Shade of Pale. It says, as the Miller told his tale, and everyone says, aha, Chaucer. He's looping in Chaucer, of course. The Miller's Tale. And you can go down the rabbit hole of that, importing Chaucer and the Miller's Tale into the meaning of the song. A tantalizing reference. But Reed himself said, not so fast. He'd never read the 14th century classic poem. And we don't need to stop there because the very first line gives us plenty of literary cud to chew. We skipped the light fandango. Turned cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling kind of seasick. The crowd called out for more. Skip the light fandango. What is that? Well, the fandango is also, Fandango is not its only appearance in classic rock. It's also in Queens, Bohemian Rhapsody. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the Fandango? (laughs) It's a Spanish dance, which emerged in the 1700s. But skip the light Fandango is sort of a hybrid phrase, a portmanteau or mashup. It echoes tripping the light fantastic, and there we are. In the presence of literary royalty. That means to dance nimbly or lightly. Nella Larson uses it in her novel Passing, where a character watches some men and women dancing and refers to them having tripped the light fantastic. Or he may have been, uh, Keith Reed may have been referring to a song called Sidewalks of New York, which came out in 1894, or to Shakespeare's The Tempest, which describes dancers as tripping on their toe. Or John Milton, whose poem L'Allegro encourages a goddess to trip it as ye go on the light fantastic toe. Tennessee Williams has a character refer to his father by saying, He was a telephone man who fell in love with long distances. He gave up his job with the telephone company and skipped the light fantastic out of town. Chester Himes, the Black American writer, best known for his Harlem detective series, once said, Colored boys and girls in ski ensembles and ballet skirts were skating the light fantastic at two o'clock. It's such an evocative phrase. Blanking the light, blank, blank, blank. Very flexible. Trip, skip, fantastic, fandango. It all works with other variations, too. Steven Sondheim has used it and many others, including Keith Reed, lyricist. May he rest in peace. Okay. Let's take a quick break and come back with Mike Palindrome and the second half of Persuasion. Hey grown ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we'll get to Mike in a minute. Our conversation is a bit long and covers a lot of ground, so I'll make this quick. Spoiler alerts for those who want to read the book first. Where we left off last time was with only Anne, Anne Elliot, good, kind, and wise, but overlooked by her family. They think of her as only Anne. She had one chance at happiness years before with Frederick Wentworth, but she was persuaded by family friend and surrogate mother, Lady Russell, that the match was not a good one. Now he's back in her life, and he seems to resent her. That's a tough pill for him to have swallowed, to know that he was rejected years ago for not being suitable, especially now that he's a wealthy and distinguished naval captain, a prize for any young woman. Anne's pulse quickens whenever she sees him, but she can't let herself fall back in love because he's so obviously uninterested, he still resents her, and in fact, he seems about to marry Louisa Musgrove, who at the end of book one has fallen from a wall and needs time to recover and lots of sympathy from everyone around, including Anne and Captain Wentworth. Where does this leave Anne? Will she have a happy ending? Indeed, she will. And how Jane Austen contrives this is very satisfying. The suspense of the book builds and builds and builds. You long for Anne and Frederick to finally express themselves to one another. No, it's more than that. They have to realize their feelings first, and then they have to allow themselves to feel them, and then they have to allow themselves to express them. And by the time that happens, we're so thirsty for it. It's like we've crawled across a desert hoping for a drop of water or two. We're ready to, to gnaw on a rag to get a little moisture. And by the end, we get a sparkling spring with all the water we can drink. It's a very happy ending, a very wonderful unfolding to the happy ending. And yet it does not feel juvenile. It feels mature because it could so easily have gone the other way and could easily have lived her life without this happy ending. And it's a reminder that the choices we make, often for very good reasons and acting upon very good advice, can lead to lives of dull regret. You might avoid some pain, maybe a lot of it, but you might also take yourself out of the running for happiness, and you won't know until later that this has happened. The beauty of the book for a grown-up is that you see all this retroactively after the lives have moved on. Destinies have largely come into focus, and you just look back on it all and think, how you can't have it all. Sometimes you can't even have much. That's how it feels, anyway. I think it's how it felt for Jane in her real life, and I'm glad she gave Anne Elliot a fresh second chance with a happier result. She goes from only Anne in the sense that she's dismissed by her family to only Anne, exclamation mark, in the sense that for Captain Frederick Wentworth, only Anne Elliot will do. There's also this. What do you do with Lady Russell? the persuader. Do you blame her? She was a heroic presence in Anne's life, the only one who truly got her, the replacement for her mother, the one who looks out for Anne at all times. And yet she's the source of this great pain. She was the persuader, and the result was disastrous. Will she be punished, redeemed? What does Jane slash Anne have in mind for Lady Russell? Let's take a quick break and hear how Mike enjoyed the book, especially the second half, and then we'll close with another My Last Book. All that after this. Okay. Joining me now is our old friend, Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club based in Manhattan. The club has survived the pandemic. Must have been hell for you, Mike, keeping the staff paid during the shutdown (laughs) without uh, perno sales. I'm guessing the club revenue must have plummeted for a while, but. Here we are. Mike, we're discussing the second half of Persuasion, but first, I wanted to get your thoughts and your experience with Jane Austen generally. Uh, When did you start reading Jane Austen?
2: Oh, so I used to, you know, growing up in Manhattan, I used to browse bookstores as a teenager Mm -hmm. and not buy books. Mm -hmm. I would just go in because they were just so expensive and I would just go to the library. But I remember picking up a copy of Emma. Mm. because I didn't know anything about Jane Austen, but I read the back. Remember those days when you would actually read the back of a book? Yeah. Buy <laughs> a book on that, that basis. And the cover, the painting on the cover, uh, I found kind of you know, alluring. Mm-hmm. So that was my first Austen, and I really liked Emma. And then I read pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility pretty quickly after that i think probably within a 5 year span
0: right okay so yeah. late teens early 20s yeah and i was going to say when did you start appreciating her but it sounds like that was there right from the beginning
2: yeah it was immediately i mean i think i think i was i was pretentious enough to want to read like war and peace when i was mm-hmm. a teenager Or, you know, or like Brothers Karamazov, which I did when I was 18. And I think there was, you know, in Austin, I found someone who was so witty and so uh, erudite, but kind of like, I mean, you could pick it up and enter and exit scenes freely. Mm. There was just something so, so engaging about her books. Yeah, and that was so different from my idea of 19th century novels.
0: Right, you don't get a lot of filler. It feels like you don't get a lot of yeah. Uh, you know, the chapters move pretty quickly in Persuasion, and and part of that might be because it was unfinished and uh, not as polished as some of the other books. But like you, sometimes with a 19th century book, you expect to run into 10 or 12 pages on some topic or the landscape or something, and you have to kind of slog through it. But that's not there in Jane Austen.
1: Yeah,
2: but still, I I think part of me felt like I had read the best of her, mm. reading those three. And what's the book she has where the characters put on a play? Mm. I've never read that one. Well, there's Mansfield Park. Mansfield Park. Yeah, what, right. I've still never read that, you know, and <laughs> I think I just felt like I, I knew Austin. I, I reread Pride and Prejudice, and I've seen the BBC 1996 version uh, like five times. Yeah, with Colin Firth. <laughs> and Jennifer Ely, and yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was like finding a new author reading Persuasion. I sort of felt like I, I was, you know, I could just keep rereading PNP and sens- Sensibility.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you first read Persuasion just this within this past year?
2: Yeah, I read it in April as part of a book club online with a public space, the Brooklyn Journal.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. And what jumped out at you about Persuasion?
2: People have remarked it's her oldest heroine. Yeah. Uh, and she's an old hag at 27. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. Washed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um I you know I I think I liked the fact that there were these distinct perspectives of her when she was younger and engaged to Captain Wentworth mm-hmm. and then you know present day when she's 27 and looking back cuz I I'm not I was trying to think of in her novels they're very present present tense and mm-hmm. you know, things happen thing more things happen there isn't this nostalgia this book is so much about nostalgia yeah, and regret. Mm-hmm. So I, I really love that about this book.
0: Yeah, there's a quote I've got here, Virginia Woolf, which is on the back cover of my copy of the book. And it's, uh, in persuasion, Jane Austen is beginning to discover that the world is larger, more mysterious, and more romantic than she had supposed.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, this book has that was one of my things um, one of my moments is just talking about the movement of the characters in this book there's so much more movement than in a, you know her other novels
0: yeah you mean the way they change
2: no i meant like just physically like oh, right. going to bath and you know right. returning back to upper cross and yep. the captain disappearing and then coming back Yeah. In her other novels, I feel like people kind of sit in the garden for like an hour and then they're (laughs) back. and Then then suddenly they have a good conversation and then they go into town and then they're back. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there is
0: this perpetual motion of it's constant moving forward. And it's like time has been shot by an arrow, you know, or time is an arrow and it's been shot from its bow or whatever the right metaphor is. But it it moves forward. And this one you do as a reader, you you start to get into the chapters and then you start gradually realizing that something big and eventful has happened in the past. It's not like the backstory is set forth on page one. It takes a few chapters before you even start to realize, oh, something's going on here with Anne that that relates to something that has to do with Lady Russell and has to do with maybe this guy who is coming to visit.
2: So let me just take this moment that what you just said just reminded me how much I dislike the Netflix recent adaptation.
0: Oh, yeah. I didn't watch it because it got so it, such savage reviews.
2: Oh, you should read the review by <laughs> the novelist Brandon Taylor on his uh, sub stack. Oh, my gosh. It's the funniest review.
0: Yeah. And then somebody said it's more like a parody of Jane
2: Austen. Yeah, you know that's I never I didn't think of that. Thought it was just like a bad, kind of watered down. It's a spoon-fed version. Like Uh, what what you just said about Anne's past and you Mm -hmm. know, two three chapters. Like that's in like the opening credits. Oh right. It's it's just it's just terrible. I just started to watch it and I'll finish it just because I want to see how they end the rest of it. But it's very disappointing. Yeah. But as someone said, as much as 1996, the BBC for me was the entry point for BBC dramas of Austin mm-hmm. and of the other dramas they've done based on books. Um, the Kira Knightley version mm-hmm. of Pride and Prejudice for the next generation was huge. Right. So who am I to completely dismiss this persuasion version if it gets people reading persuasion, <laughs> the actual book.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. So I wanted to get back to this idea of it being her oldest heroine and her and I think it kind of connects with this idea of time and the way time moves because when I think about a lot of the other Jane Austen books, there are options presented as if somebody walks into this room and there are a bunch of different doors. And kind of the question is, is she going to go through the right door? Should she open another door before she decides? Or it's kind of that viewpoint. And then you get to see that, you know, and we maybe get a little more information. And so we're rooting for her to go through one door or the other. Mm -hmm. And this one is sort of like, well, what if somebody goes through a door and then winds up in a room and realizes they probably should have chosen a different door or they regret that they maybe had a chance to go in a different direction and they didn't take it. It does open up something other than bitterness, because if you accept that it's, it's not something to be bitter about, but it's the way life worked and maybe you had good reasons for making that choice at the time and you're not here to blame anybody. You're just, Sort of dealing with it as it is, but then it raises this question of but does that mean you're condemned forever <laughs> you know the one choice that you're 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 now you're locked into your destiny for the rest of your life or can you grow and find happiness and and is there still hope for you
2: yeah I mean it's it, yeah, I think one of the tweets in the the book club people were saying it's the most relatable
1: Mm. Austin
2: because like, you know, some of us may not had that many suitors, but surely in our minds, we've thought of, we've we've had missed opportunities.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: Um, everyone has. And so, you know, looking back and having something that is so, so much within her reach, but for Lady Russell's advice, Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, the setup is great. Yeah. Right. And, and the other thing is that it, it's so
0: perfect for this character. Yeah. You know, it's so perfect that this story that Anne is at the center of it, because when you're 19 and you're making choices, your, your strengths and your power in this world are your your brightness and your liveliness and your, your cuteness and your beauty and your fortune, you know, the money, the family money that comes in thats sort of, that's the package. And, and then when you're 27, uh, it's your steadiness and your, your judgment and your wisdom and all of the things that, that everyone admires about Anne even if her family doesn't always recognize it is, is kind of like what makes a 27 year old such a valuable uh, presence and such a valuable person. I mean, I, I love that part of considering that part of the book too, that, that Anne is the reason why she's so lovable is because she's so competent and, you know, when when there's a an accident that happens, she's the one who knows what to do. And I just love being around people like that. And the older I get, the more I appreciate people like that. It's, there's just something very comforting with being with the, the people who are calm in a crisis and who know how to prioritize and get things done and exercise good judgment. And that's not what I was looking for in a uh, romantic partner when I was 18 or 19. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was looking for a completely different set of qualities. But now that I'm older, right. I I feel like, oh, those are the things that that really make life better and that you can grow with someone when they have those qualities. And, and yeah. you can appreciate being their life partner when you have those. And it, so it makes sense that Anne is she's not lizzie she's she's 27 she's not the the young one looking for love she's the older one who's asking if happiness is still available to her
2: yeah i mean they they say that your compatibility with someone in marriage is largely based on your view toward savings It's like that's what <laughs> that's what it comes down to. That so many arguments, like domestic mm. arguments, are about money and savings, yeah, and consumption. You know, consumerism. So I mean, we have Ann, who the father is kind of a bumbler,
3: yeah, you know, right.
2: at, at best, a bumbler. At worst, just a burden, yeah, to the family, right. You know, thank gosh that Ann is there you know it's so yeah yeah, they're just different there's so many things that a 27 year old you know back then had to deal with um parents dying off earlier her mother dies and yeah it's just it's sad that austin wasn't able to write a book about a heroine in her 30s yeah that that we missed out on right right but she would have come up with
1: yeah
0: Right. You get the feeling she's so incisive and so insightful that you get the feeling that as her nieces grew older and and as she became more of a the elder, you get the feeling she would have had a really good understanding of what was going on with the younger generations and all of their comings and goings and... <laughs> <laughs> and who they were falling in love with, and so on. And and you would have seen a, a really rich, uh, some really rich characters coming out of her view of the younger generation.
2: Yeah. Can, you can say that for a lot of writers, but yeah, I feel like seeing the glimmer of persuasion really kind of hits you. What was lost that Austin didn't tackle something like that? Mm hmm. I mean, she died when she was 41. I mean, I always forget that. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay. Oh. So I asked you to choose five of your favorite moments from part two. So I've got the list here. I was going to ask you about them and what it was that you that drew you to those passages in particular. So the first one up was in chapter two, the noise of the children in Uppercross.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, Austin is one of these people that really reminds me how hard it is to read in translation. Mm. And I would, I, I'd rather read Dostoevsky in translation than not read him at all. I totally agree. Right. But you know, there are there are times when, as a native speaker, when I read in English, I just think the prose is just and the the connotations. Yeah, it's so hard and. <laughs> I think Austin is is especially hard. That, yeah. So in that chapter, she has this line: um, "Everybody has their taste in noises as well as in other matters, and sounds are quite innoxious or most distressing by their sort rather than by their quantity."
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and it's just the the clamor of the children, and when they return to Uppercross and the noises that belong to Winter Pleasures. I just, I love this contrast between the physical noise and what's going on in Anne's head, because, I mean, we talk about how much the book is focused on Anne. I I feel like we're so clearly allied with Anne's point of view than in any other, with any other Austen novel heroine. Mm. And th- there are these contrasts that I love, um and so noise is is the first one,
1: yeah,
0: it's got the that passage I think you were talking about. It's got the chattering girls who are cutting up silk and gold paper. This is like a <laughs> Christmas scene, and on right. the other were trestles and trays bending under the weight of brawn and cold pies where riotous boys were holding high revel. The whole completed by a roaring Christmas fire which seemed determined to be heard in spite of all the noise of the others. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, that's great. I mean it's it's you know, the way she sets the scene and then pulls back so that we get back into Anne's head is great. A- Anne did not share these feelings. This is in the chapter. She persisted in being very determined, though very silent disinclination for bath.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I like in that passage, too, how Charles Musgrove is trying to pay his respects to Lady Russell, and he sits down close to her for 10 minutes, talking with a very raised voice, but from the clamor of the children on his knees, generally in vain. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just get the sense of what it's like to be in this busy family household where the kids are ruling everything because they're they're the the kings of chaos but then the grown-ups are trying to talk to each other they they're practically shouting at each other and they still can't be heard <laughs> okay so number 2 was from chapter 4 Anne and in Mr. Elliot talk about who qualifies as good company this was actually uh This made it into the film version that I just watched today, which was the 1990s version with Kieran Hines and. Who plays Anne? Amanda Root. Oh. I think she's very good and very charming, but there's something about the version. It paled a little bit in comparison Mm -hmm. with Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, which kind of came out around the same time and i've seen people say oh this is you know this is the forgotten one this is the overlooked one and it it should be better known and and maybe that's true and maybe it's i'm sure it's much better than the netflix one that just came out but it is a little bit thin compared to those other two but those other two are like classics yeah those are giants of their field so to be you know a b plus instead of their a plus is not too bad (laughs) but but they did have this exchange in it yeah. because it's such a, a good uh well I'll let you talk
2: about it yeah i mean it's it's i think there's there are a number of ways that people kind of confront each other whether it's letters or face to face in persuasion mm-hmm. and it, in my mind it's almost like the closest it's almost like they're coming to blows, mm. but in this very d- dignified way. Like Anne says, my idea of good company, Mr. Elliot, is the company of clever, well-informed people who have a great deal of conversation. That is what I call good company. And he goes, you are mistaken, said he gently. That is not good company. That is the best. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, I mean, he, you know, he's interested in her... He's trying to distinguish himself. Lady Russell has kind of stamped him as a good match. Yeah. Lady Russell is wrong about everything all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I love that the echo of Lady Russell saying Wentworth was not a good match and the way it gets picked up through the novel. Yeah, right, right. It's such a deft touch. Yeah, Uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because we have a lot of sympathy for Lady Russell, too. And I want to save the ending for the ending. But, you know, throughout, we see her and she's just trying to be a good replacement for the lost mother. And she does seem very selfless in trying to help this family. And she's she does give good advice to the father. And she's someone who recognizes Anne. You know, she loves Anne and she loves her because she reminds her of Anne's mother. And she gets Anne in a way that most of the people who are around Anne don't get her. It's not like she's portrayed as this demon or some kind of villainous. But on the other hand, everything that, everything in Anne that went wrong is sort of traceable back <laughs> to advice that she took from Lady Russell.
2: Yeah. The influences, you know, why it was very striking, the influences on you when you're 18 versus 27.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, at 18, you really, really do... You're you're also, you know, not... You don't have that armor that you have in your late 20s or, or you know, or beyond. And everything has so much weight. hmm And here... This scene is just such an example of how Anne is really her own person and has so many opinions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when you're 18, everything is so new and everything is so momentous. All the decisions you're making have such consequences. And it feels like, you know, you don't have anything locked down yet. Everything is so wide open and you're not in a position of strength really you're you're kind of still making your way you know most people when they're 18 they don't have a a life partner they don't have a permanent location they don't have a profession they don't have anything else that stabilizes people as they get older and so all they kind of have is their family but their family is pushing them out of the nest they just are open to any kind of advice or suggestion or help or or, you know, a, 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 an idea for a job, or a, here's a way you could make some money, or here's here's how you should invest, or here's what where you should go, and here's someone you could live with, and all of these little things that nobody would even raise with me now but when you're 18 it's like oh you spent the summer on an alaskan fishing vessel uh they need people i didn't know that you can make a lot of money doing that okay well i guess i could think about that you know it's like any idea
2: is a, a possibility yeah i mean and to i mean I'm, i don't know how many people how many of the listeners will have read the 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 novel or know the ending but reading it for the first time I really felt like Wentworth was going to play a large part in the ending, mm. but I didn't know who else would vie. Mm. And it was interesting, Mister Elliot, as a, as a character, because the other characters are also kind of won over by him. Mm-hmm. And it's just not Lady Russell. Yeah, the second half of the book has a lot of good chess maneuvers mm-hmm. among the characters yeah yeah
0: and throughout there's a kind of consistency to it just to wrap up this passage you pointed out with Anne and mr elliot talk about who qualifies as good company what ann is asking for in that passage is so simple and seemingly so <laughs> unobjectionable you know what is it yeah. good people who are good company you know are they they They're intelligent enough to give good opinions and and are amiable or, you know, it's basically it seems it sounds like a bare minimum. And he's kind of saying like, no, no, you're we're way overshooting the target here. That's you're describing a kind of ideal that that's a paradise. All you really need is and then the way he describes it is so transactional and superficial and just based on good birth and having had the right manners and coming from the right family and that kind of thing. And you realize they're not worthy of Anne. And Anne, without really realizing how much she's above them, is just looking for truth and honesty and and love and uh, human connection and all of that that she could have had when she was 19, But she talked herself out of it because everybody else had these values that emphasized the wrong things.
2: One tweet during the book club, it it was interesting because they were saying like, "Had Anne married Wentworth at nineteen, she would have become a different person." Hmm. I mean, obviously a real hypothetical here, but and she wouldn't have been as happy as she turns out at the end.
0: Yeah. Well, why would that be? I can think of a couple potential reasons but what do you think I, I think, mean
2: I, I think just not being married and being overshadowed by your husband in in that era she kind of came into her own watching mm, over right her dad and helping out with her sister and gained some
0: confidence and some independence and kind of had those life experiences which helped her I was gonna say that she appreciated love more when it came for her. But the other thing is there's some suggestions that Wentworth, you know, he made his fortune at sea and he went because she had rejected him. And he was probably a little more reckless than he would have been. And maybe he wouldn't have even gone or or wouldn't have, you know, risen through the ranks the way he did if he had been married and had been thinking of Anne and and wanting to return home to her and all that. So his personality seems to be, they seem like they would have been happy together, but they they maybe would have struggled more and, and maybe getting together when they do at age 27, which is not really that old. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was the way to go. But I, I just love that Anne, through all of the book, her being who she is, is what ends up kind of carrying the day. She doesn't need to be young and pretty. It's not this feeling of, well, it turns out that she's even prettier than she was when she was 19. It's like, no, that what turns out is that the qualities that make her who she is are what end up rescuing her or what end up bringing her this success.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a good segue to the, my next moment, which is in Chapter Six, the the letter Anne receives from her sister Mary. Yeah, about Louise and this other captain becoming involved or possibly involved, and then thus freeing up Captain Wentworth. And I, I am a romantic, but I hate romantic moments in novels.
1: Mm. <laughs>
2: but. <laughs> the, there's something the way Austin handles, and it, it, it's a level of language when when she, she says something like, "He had an affectionate heart; he must love somebody," mm-hmm. and it reminds me a little bit of Beckett, because mm-hmm. Beckett drives me crazy. But then there's stuff in Beckett where he uses language in such a unclichéd way. It's it's not it's not just raw, but it's just like you just hear it differently than you would if it was phrased differently. I mean, it literally just comes down to the phrasing of it. And it's just these this, these words, like, he must have somebody. Mm. And, you know, it's a feeling that we all know, but the words just convey it more convincingly. And I think Austin is able to do romance without you know, much cliche. I mean, yes, when we describe it, the the plot devices, it does sound cliche, but when you're reading it, it it never feels cliche to me.
0: Right. It feels earned. Yeah. You know,
2: like a lot of the
0: if you describe someone what happens with the letters uh, at the (laughs) end and and the way he's overhearing it and then he pulls out more paper and he keeps writing and he's actually now writing a letter to her and all of that. You'd think like, oh, wow, what a clunky way of getting them in the room and of exchanging this and all of that. But it, it comes at the end of so much buildup and there's so many near misses and there's so much you, you're at that point, you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for them to finally break through and to communicate to each other. This thing that it's become clear that he probably feels as much as she does and you're just hoping that she's going to let herself do it and not talk herself out of it and, and nothing else is going to interfere. And by then, you're just rooting for them so hard that it almost doesn't matter that the the plot and, and the, the coincidences and things like that in other hands, in the hands of a different author, might feel contrived and everything. It just, I don't know, I, I just get swept away.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's so aware of the gestures Mm -hmm. of people who have crushes on each other. I mean, (laughs) she's like, you know, and there's in that same chapter, uh, she writes, and I think this is Wentworth, uh, he spoke to her and then turned away. The character of his manner was embarrassment. She could not have called it either cold or friendly or anything so certainly as embarrassed. After a short interval, however, he came towards her and spoke again. I mean, it's just you know, it, it, the way they kind of dance around each other. Yeah, is so perfect.
0: Yeah, and the way since we're talking about Mary, the way the way that that Mary will uh, kind of blithely insult Anne. Even as she's trying to <laughs> praise her, you right. know, or, or trying to see things from her point of view, but she's so narcissistic and so she so overlooks and strengths, and she's so incapable of of acknowledging that, that people might view Anne as better than Mary at certain things, or uh, it it really is it's that wit of Jane Austen, the sort of comic foibles of a character
2: that they have that sort of blind spot. And, you know, this book clocks in at like 200 pages. It's yeah. just, it was such a delight to read. And it has all of the early ish Austin and PNP and Sense of Sensibility, but there's this extra level that it's kind of like we're behind the curtains of like people just wanting to get married and appease their parents. Yeah. I mean, it's like Anne is her own parent almost.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you do get the feeling you talked about wondering if there was going to be another rival who would vie. You get the feeling that the biggest rival would be and deciding, no, this is, you know, my time has passed and and that's fine because I'm needed by my family and I'm I I can live with some past crush that didn't happen because it wasn't meant to be. And I chose differently and I'm fine with that. And I'll I'll stay independent, and maybe that's what Jane had thought in her life. And it does
2: feel like
0: that could have been a viable option for someone as reasonable and as pragmatic as Anne.
2: Yeah, I mean it's right. So you, we, we can't help knowing that Austen was dying when she wrote this. Mm-hmm. We can't help thinking that even more than her other characters, and uh, is a stand-in for for yeah. Jane Austen.
0: Yeah. And that Jane was thinking what might have been. Yeah. You know, the other thing, and let's pivot to this because I wanted to ask you about this, is this whole notion of persuading is such such an interesting idea for, for a novel. And I'm wondering if you found yourself thinking about your own life and and times when you've either been asked for advice or you've tried to to persuade someone to take a certain course of advice or you've been <laughs> uh, you've been listening to someone else or you know just that whole dynamic of who takes responsibility for the decisions in their lives, and sometimes we might want someone else to decide things for us, and we might. We might try to jump in on, you know, we might the way someone might reach out to a life raft or something to say, well, well, so and so told me that I shouldn't do this, and it, it kind right. of absolves ourselves of our own responsibility. So, what's been your history with persuading and being persuaded?
2: Well, I, I, I feel like I've just heard so much bad advice mm. that um i it served me well just doing the exact opposite <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes um i think once or twice people have accused me of being selfish mm. um it, which i think is it, it manifests itself by not being uh on uh, you know above board in the way you act like because if people find out after the fact they that you've done something it it you know it's more grading so they feel like you're being selfish, whereas if you had just told them up front and they had the time to like, I know this is all very abstract <laughs> yeah. but it, it, if you kind of warn them you're going to do something, like they can react and they can like try to figure out what they want to say, but if it's already done. They they accuse you of being selfish, that, oh. which is my way of saying that um, I've just I I feel like what's worked best for me is just doing whatever I think is best for me rather than soliciting advice. Mm. Right.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, is
0: is what you're saying that if, if you solicit advice and then you don't follow it, then people feel like you're you're ignoring their good judgment and that's a selfish act
2: well they don't like you ignoring it but i think the the selfish act is you doing the the act itself that you decide to undertake is so clearly for you oh right that it's viewed as selfish right Right, <laughs> which is maybe a character Austin would have gotten to had she written about a heroine in her 30s, whether, you know... Who doesn't you know. care so much Yeah, anymore. like the, op- yeah. The, the anti-Emma, you know? Yeah, right. Where, you know, because I think that's one of the sadder lessons as an adult is you realize, you know, if you don't take stuff, you might not get them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and that nobody really cares uh, as much as you do about things. And and nobody's going to watch out for you. If you if you don't assert yourself as somebody who wants something, um, yeah. no one will, you know, look out for you and, and try to make sure you have it.
2: Yeah. I mean, and some people were tweeting that it, maybe it could have worked out with Mr. Elliot because... He was clearly willing to bend a little bit and change for her, <laughs> yeah, because of who she was, and by asserting herself that way, maybe that could have been a happy match too, which is a you know an interesting read of the book, yeah, <laughs> there could have been multiple happy endings,
0: so. yeah, yeah, and maybe if you subtract wentworth from it would she have been better off alone or with someone like Elliot just to be with yeah. someone period. Right. And then, and then you can work within that marriage, but you're, you're, you're not by yourself.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: That's a little tough to think about because I think I would rather have, and just like I would rather have Jane alone <laughs> than in an unhappy marriage. But uh, you know, there's, there's a spectrum and it it can be bliss and it can be, unhappiness and then there can be something kind of in the middle that's maybe companionship that might be uh suitable for for some people or maybe that's the best you can get
2: yeah i mean that i love about this book is that you know it's not i maybe i'm mistaken but i feel like the characters in this novel are have more money and are like mm. class above her usual mm-hmm. characters because there isn't like the threat of them being thrown out of their house because there's no male heir like in Pride and Prejudice. You know, there isn't like yeah. the, the only risk is her just not being married. Right. Well, her her father has to
0: leave Kelly. Oh,
2: right, right, right. Yeah. Okay.
0: He made a bunch of foolish decisions. And now they're do we want to tighten our belts and cut back? Or should we go to Bath where things are cheaper and they choose that? That made me think of people oh, who... Right. Uh, live, you know, they say, well, I, I wanna be in a big house with a big yard. It just means I have to live an hour and a half outside of the city and I'll just drive into work. <laughs> you know, I'll right. just commute from there or something. And that seems like what Bath is serving in that sense. But but it doesn't feel like there's risk the way the other
2: it, yeah. it doesn't feel like that's the obstacle. I found that very enjoyable. I felt like there was happiness lurking. Mm-hmm. And I was really rooting for Anne and felt like she would find happiness (laughs) in this first first time reading it. And the next moment I have in chapter nine, where Anne and her school friend, Mrs. Smith, discuss Mr. Elliot, all these Austin conversations in drawing rooms and walks and in gardens and exchanging letters, they never grow old. Yeah. You're always so riveted by yeah. the way someone <laughs> assesses someone else. <laughs> I I was writing down notes as I was reading
0: the the book and my note for that stretch where she's talking to Mrs. Smith, I said, yeah. uh Um Mrs. Smith delivers it like an Agatha Christie detective. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, okay, let me let me set the scene for you. Here's what happened here, here's what happened there. If you doubt this, let me uh, you know, let me alleviate those doubts by giving you this piece of evidence and then I'll give you that piece of evidence and it it becomes this little narrative within the narrative that is uh it reads almost like a a detective story where they're they're giving you the the grand conclusion and the, the finish you know
2: aha we caught the culprit uh. <laughs> yeah i mean this is this is my favorite chapter of the the novel other than the chapter where they they go climbing on rocks and yeah. louise has an accident <laughs> i just that's in part one but that, yeah. uh, to me that's uh, like a tort force chapter yeah yeah uh, that's and, and and at that, her best yeah, and I'm I'm going to watch the end of the Netflix show because I want to see how they handle that. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, th- this chapter, it almost feels like a kind of ending. And it's the way I like my books to end. Mm. But, of course, we have to have chapter 12 and ch- chapter 13.
0: Yeah. What do you mean by it's the way you like your books to end?
2: I just... I, I don't like little things tied up with a bow.
0: Oh, right. So know? this is where they learn something, but that doesn't—they haven't yet translated that into the resolution of what does this mean for them in real life. But they do have new knowledge.
2: Yeah, and I mean you can't just end it with chapter nine, but it's so rewarding reading mm-hmm. this chapter. Yeah, and and that's. I mean, the rest of it, I kind of, you know, I confess, I kind of sleepwalk through the rest of the the other chapters. because I I sort of know, like, okay.
0: Right. This puzzle piece is going to fit here and then this is going to happen there. But there's two things I want to ask you about in the ending. One is the famous line, you pierce my soul, I am half agony, half hope, which is... It's such a beautiful line. You, yeah. you see it on t-shirts and coffee mugs and <sighs> and you know it's it's like one of the most famous Jane Austen lines there is. But as I was thinking about it, I am half agony, half hope. My first read of that was that he is this almost like an artistic soul and he's got this sensitivity and that he's feeling something that is very rarefied and and he's in this incredibly tormented position or something. And then as I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe he's just good at describing something that is actually pretty common. I mean, <laughs> it isn't that isn't that what it feels like when yeah. you're truly in love with someone but and you Either they haven't returned that, or you don't know yet, or you just haven't, you know, they're they're with someone else or something. It's half agony and it's half hope. It's not not that unusual. It's just Jane Austen found the perfect way to describe it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, that line reminded me of A Lover's Discourse by Roland Barthes about how so much of love is the the risk that you're going to lose this love Mm. that it's just the reason why it's so piercing is because it can't just stay the way it is Mm. and so Yeah. yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah there is a shelf life on that feeling of half agony half hope
2: and they're old Yeah, So, (laughs) but if you carried that
0: with you for five years or 10 years, it would start to become pathetic. Yeah. I'm like, well, why haven't you said anything by now? You know? (laughs) Okay, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Lady Russell. Uh, So in tying this up, one of the big loose ends was, well, and now has sort of thrown Lady Russell's advice to the side and has kind of recognized it for what it was as delaying her happiness for all these years and was terrible advice to take. And Lady Russell was about to marry her off to Elliot, too. Like, (laughs) you know, and and yet so we could say, you know, so she told Lady Russell to get lost and banished her to the woods and they never saw each other again or something. Instead, they're friends, which is the right way to go for a happy ending. And Lady Russell admits she was wrong, which is kind of a nice character. And it's consistent with, like I said before, Lady Russell's not portrayed as a villain or a a, a maniac or a demon or anything. She's portrayed as someone who's well-intentioned, but just kind of giving advice based on the wrong values. But then Jane Austen delivers this line that for Mm -hmm. me is like the Jane Austen economical, just perfect prose to convey this sentiment. She said about Lady Russell, she loved Anne better than she loved her own abilities.
2: Yeah. Oh, man.
0: Isn't that great? (laughs) It's just... Like, oh, OK, so Lady Russell is big enough to 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 not be proud or, you know, that she really does want to see Anne happy and she's willing to kind of take the take the lumps that she probably, you know, they'll probably never forget that she was the one who who advised them against getting married and, and delayed it. But but. It's going to be okay because she loved Anne better than that. And it it just made me feel so warm about about these people. And and that's kind of what I love about the the Jane Austen books. And this book in particular, I didn't want it to end because I didn't want to stop hanging around these people. Uh, And Anne in particular, but also Wentworth and the Admiral and his wife. And there's some good people in here. And it's just fun to be in the room with them.
2: Yeah, you really cheer for everyone. I mean, and you have... We come to this novel with Lady Russell already having given Anne the advice. So Mm -hmm. that alone makes me feel more forgiving to Lady Russell. Yeah. And then you feel like there are enough other factors at play that it wasn't just Lady Russell. Like, yes, she was probably like the biggest factor, but there were other things going on. Right.
0: Anne has to take agency for her decision. You know, she ultimately, she could have ignored the advice. And and it was consistent with who she was and how yeah. she viewed the world. And, and she believed it was sensible and, and all of that. But like you said, it's a decision that was made years before the book begins. And so we're not going through that decision yeah. process and thinking, well, should she or shouldn't she? we're going yep. through the process of asking well what do you do about those lost years do you how do you get beyond regret do you accuse people who misled you at the time do you beat yourself up forever because you made a decision that that maybe could have led to more happiness and you made the wrong decision and and didn't take that path or or do you chase after your youth and and try to, you know, relive like it it's all kind of there. And then she ends up with Wentworth. So everything is kind of happy in that way. But it still kind of begs the question of, well, what about all those lost years? Do you just chalk it up and say, well, that's life? Or do you kind of find yourself thinking, still thinking what might have been?
2: and wentworth why he had to wait this long i i think that's a that's an aspect yeah. of this novel that i i, I want to reread the novel because i you know i love that scene in chapter 12 when he is eavesdropping and hears her talking
0: about men and women yeah yeah, yeah right
2: and it's like kind of like wentworth needs encouragement or signs throughout and you know why he waited 7 years and didn't approach her earlier is something that kind of looms over the book too. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I, I like that in that chapter. And then Austin has that line, who can be in doubt of what followed? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the other
0: thing. I mean, I say I like spending time with, with these people in these rooms, but really what I miss is spending time with Jane. I mean, I want to spend time with her narrative voice, and I don't know if you ever saw this after Emma Thompson won the uh, Academy Award, Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, I don't think this was at the Academy Awards. I think it was maybe at a different award ceremony, Uh, maybe the Golden Globes or something in Britain or something where she delivered the acceptance speech as a letter from Jane Austen. And, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really funny, it's really sharp, and and it it's perfectly done. And it kind of made me think, yeah, I know how Emma Thompson feels, where you get this voice in your head and you feel yes. like Jane is kind of like your best friend, and you you just want to celebrate how much fun it is to read her prose. And I couldn't write a letter like Emma Thompson had done, but I felt like I could understand the impulse that made Emma Thompson want to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so here's a question for you. Maybe this will be the last question. Finish this sentence for me. I told my friend to read Persuasion because it's such a great book for someone who...
2: Blank. For someone who needs just something a little extra added to their lives.
0: Oh, interesting. Because I had written down earlier in my notes, uh, I think of Jane Austen as being kind of like a wine, where it's not essential for me to be alive, but life is better with it.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh my God, we're in sync. yeah, okay <laughs> well let's
0: let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. And finally, today we close with a my last book. Here's one Mike would like, I think. this is from our guest Juliet Breton, specialist in the literature of Eastern Europe. Okay, we're here with Juliet Breton, a journalist and PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge who specializes in European literature of the 20th century. Juliet, this question came to me from a listener. What do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or you can describe one that has not yet been written.
3: Okay, I would like to pick a book that we assume exists, mm. um, which is a novel called The Messiah. Mm. Which was by a Polish Jewish author called Bruno Schultz. Um, Schultz came from an area of Poland which is now in Ukraine. He wrote collections of short stories. He um, wrote, wrote other various short fiction in his lifetime. He was murdered um, in the Holocaust in the 1940s. The Messiah is a work that we think exists because he wrote about writing yeah. it. And he, he, there were parts of his collections of short stories which were said to be included in this work and in his drawings as well. But the copy has been lost and we don't know whether it's still out there. We don't know whether Schultz ever finished it, whether it might just be a legend that he kind of came up with, um, that maybe he hadn't fully formed yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it would be, I mean, over the last few years, quite a lot of Schultz's works have been rediscovered in archives. And I quite like this idea of there being this lost novel that everyone's looking for that might be somewhere. And I think it would be so interesting to see what Schultz was thinking in the 1930s, 1940s, when he was writing this at a time when war was breaking out.
0: So do you want to be the only reader? Like this is something you're <laughs> giving the secret knowledge? Or do you want this to be someone says, oh, guess what? They found it after all. It's coming out. Here's a copy
2: for you to read.
3: I think I'd like to be part of a community of readers because I, I think Hilts is, is so, his prose is so knotty that I think you need that community to decipher it. You can't do it on your own. So um, yeah, I think I think a kind of community of readers We could all have a different perspective on it um if it does exist if it is anywhere if it's in some archive somewhere it would be absolutely wonderful to see you know what he what he was thinking about in the later 1930s
0: and this would be kind of you've studied this for much of your life so far and you're headed towards studying it even longer you would view this as sort of like the icing on the cake so to speak
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> definitely. Definitely.
0: <laughs> Go out with a bang. <laughs> yes, absolutely.
3: Yeah. And, and I think just the sense of, you know, it's a kind of mystery. And, and I'd, I'd love to I don't know, I'd, I'd love to be alive to see it found if, if, it is, if it is out there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, a yeah. lot of people, I've asked a lot of guests this question, and a lot of mm-hmm. people have basically chosen something maybe even from childhood because they want the comfort they want something familiar, they want the old favorite voice or the, the one that they remember their mother reading to them or something like that, to put them in the right frame of mind. You seem to be mm. thinking, you know, we're put on this earth to be curious creatures and to keep learning. And it would be the best way to spend your final hours would be to continue to explore.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, learning never stops. There's never a point where you think, well, I've learned all the knowledge that there is. You know, you're constantly learning new things, and new perspectives. And I think it would just be, you know, a curious and, and quite thrilling thing to have mm. to have a copy of that if it is out there.
0: Now, because you don't know it, there's a lot of unknowns here, which is why I'm, I'm continuing to ask these follow up questions. What if you read it and it made you wish that you had done something differently in your life? Mm. Is that a possibility? Like, oh, this, I realize I should have, you know, whatever. <laughs> I should have gone down a different path. Oh, if only I had read this earlier.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> and I think also, you know, talking about childhood again, the sense of you know, the Messiah, what we know about it is we think schultz was writing about his childhood. Mm his short stories are also about childhood but it's a sense of a more kind of mythical version of childhood or myth through childhood so i think in ways that would probably be quite comforting yes there might be a sort of sense of you know wishing you could do something differently but i think reading something that was about these wider concepts of of myth and how myth relates to the individual and that sense of timelessness and spacelessness and you know you're only in one this is getting quite meta but (laughs) how you're you're only in sort of your existence on Earth is a very short period of time compared to the wider existence of humanity and of the universe. And I think, you know, in, in many ways, that's that's scary. But that's also a comfort in that you can't possibly do everything there is to do. And you have to be OK with that. Right.
0: I feel that way when I I don't know if you know the James Joyce story, The Dead, but it's that feeling at the end of, well, Gabriel, he's accepting that he has his life and his aunts have their lives, and his wife has her life, and they're all different, but that's okay. And if you're reading something like that at the end, you'd think, and I had my life too.
3: And I had the Messiah with me. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs>
0: now I get this as part of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Juliet Breton, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Okay, there we go. That wraps up Persuasion Week here at the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for joining me and to Juliet Breton, too. Time to read more Jane Austen and some Bruno Schultz as well. We'll be back next week. Well, what do we have? Ford Maddox Ford is coming up soon. Black Shakespeare. We are going to be looking at the year 1989 in black cinema. Kind of a miraculous year. We're going to have a pair of podcasters here to discuss that one. We'll have some Henry James coming up as well. Toni Morrison and Dostoevsky are looming, as is Hannah Arendt, Ani Ernu, and Lord Byron. Maybe a little Ambrose Bierce to keep things lively. Lots of good stuff in the works. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.